Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Let the consequences be what they may, whether the Potomac is crimsoned in human gore, and Pennsylvania Avenue is paved ten fathoms deep with mangled bodies, or whether the last vestige of liberty is swept from the face of the American continent. The South will never submit to such humiliation and degradation as the inauguration of Abraham Lincoln. Glass is chilling. With my chilling. That superb American accent. I mean, I didn't even try and do an Atlanta accent there, but because no. that was that Tom, was have written. You to, have you been to Georgia? I'll come to that in a minute. Uh, that was <laughs> that was from the Atlanta newspaper, the Southern Confederacy, in August 1860. Um, I have been to Savannah. Oh, that's very Georgia. I've been to yeah. Savannah. Yeah. So yes, I have. But you clearly didn't pick up the local dialect. No, I didn't. I'm afraid. Um, so uh, many apologies to um, all Americans from the South who may be listening to this. Um, I put my hands up. I can't do it. I, I really apologize. Um, but it's, we wanted to read that because it, I mean, it is, a, I mean, it's the kind of the death knell for the, uh, the peace that it held and the sense of kind of the carnage that is to come. Um, and it's a perfect introduction to part two of uh, the episode we're doing here on the rest of history on the American Civil War. And um, in the first part, Adam Smith, great scholar of the period, took us through the causes of the war. And Adam, um, you took us up to the firing on Fort Sumter and the establishment of the Confederacy uh, with its capital at Richmond. Um, at what point do you think it becomes absolutely clear that there is no way back? Is it the firing on Fort Sumter? That's what's traditionally said, isn't it? Or even after that, might it have been possible to pull back the dogs of war? No, I, I, don't, I don't think so, because by that point, the, this new confederacy had um, this huge burst of self-confidence. You know, they, they pulled it off. They pulled off what seemed to be what may seem to us to be the most extraordinary thing to create a, a new slaveholding republic in the middle of the 19th century, but they'd done it. And what were the chances that the United States, with virtually no standing army, and what army it had was kind of strung out policing the frontier, the Native Americans, what, what chance had they got of subduing militarily an area that's the size of Western Europe? I mean, who, how are they going to manage that? So do they think that there simply won't be a war, that people in the North will just accept it? I think there's definitely many Southerners who hope that because they have a pretty low well, opinion hope it, but of do they Northerners. Think it? 
I think some of them who thought it, yeah. Some of them calculated that the North was too divided, um, that it was made up of this polyglot. We didn't, we didn't talk in the last episode about immigration, but that's part of the, it's actually part of the story here. This big scale immigration of Catholic Irish um, into mainly into New York and, and, and Boston, Philadelphia in the, in the 1850s. And Southerners look at this and there's Germans come in as well. And the, the Southerners look at this and they think, you know, this, this polyglot conglomeration of greasy mechanics, you know, they don't know how to handle a gun. They've got, they've got no clue. They've got no capacity. There's no political will. So they're not going to be able to fight us. Um, but if there is a war, there'll be one great climactic Napoleonic-style battle and clearly we'll win it and it'll be job done. But Adam, I, I mean, the question that always has been on my mind is why, and, and I, I mean, a lot of Americans will say, oh, it's obvious. But I would say to an outsider, to a non-American, it's not obvious. Why do, The Northerners hate slavery. They think slavery is corrupting. They think the South is, 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 is sunk in sin, is, is steeped in sin. Why don't the Northerners just let the South go? I mean, why don't they just say, okay, sod you. Set up your tin pot confederacy. We've got you know, billions more factories than you. We're much more prosperous. We're much more productive. We're not corrupted by slavery. You'll sink like a stone, and then you'll come begging to us in 10 years, please, can we come back into the Union? I mean, why don't, why don't, why don't they do that? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a question I've been asking for 20 years, actually, Dominic. I mean, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. It is the, it is the question. Because I think the other side of it, which is not hard for me to explain why Southerners wanted to secede. There's a lot, there's a lot much more being written about that question. And to me, it's not really a mystery at all. I think they were absolutely, given their own, given the situation they were in by 1860, I think they were quite right to roll the dice. And the Southerners. The Southerners, yeah. The slave, I mean, it, it turned out really, really badly for them. But I think I can totally see why, given the election of Lincoln, there were going to be there were going to be a lot more Republican presidents potentially where he came from, given the shifting demographics, given the electoral system. And it's really hard to maintain an oppressive system of human enslavement. You've got to know that the polity that you are existing in respects and is going to uphold the idea of property in human beings. And if you've got a president of the of your country who doesn't believe that property in human beings is legitimate, that's really, really bad. Uh, so, you, you know, it makes it made complete sense. Now, there were lots of reasons why, but yeah, but hang on, the enslaved people can still escape across the north and then you won't have the Fugitive Slave Act uh, to 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 re- get your um, property as you think of it returned. But then they were saying, well, that wasn't working anyway. So what have you lost, really? So it makes complete sense why Southerners want to secede. But your question, why then did... Northerners respond to secession with a war to save the Union is a right one. After all, I mean, what would we do if uh, when Scotland votes for independence? Are you going to join up to fight for the Union? Perhaps you will, Tom. I don't know. I think you, <laughs> well, you've written quite I'm, passionately on this. Yeah, Tom, Tom, has, Tom has got – I mean, I've been to Tom's house. I've, he's got a whole room full of stuff. <laughs> Like ready to go, he's got like disguises. Well, artillery. Yeah, artillery. he's got it all. <laughs> well, actually, actually, we've um, we've 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 got a, a house on the north bank of the Tweed, just inside mm. Scotland. So it'll be a bridgehead. <laughs> <laughs> Fort Sumter. But yeah, I mean, obviously, there's but your example, Adam. Right? Here's, I mean, here's, okay. So, but anyway, I've not answered your question here. Let me try and answer your question. Why? Why did? I mean, the word. I mean, I suppose. Some people did say that. Let the let the erring sisters depart in peace. It was a headline in the New York Tribune. I mean, there was that there was that sentiment. But why not? Because in the end, the point is this: the United States is the last best hope of Earth. That's Abraham Lincoln's phrase. It is 
And that, and just think about that. This is the last refuge for, for humanity. If the experiment in democracy of constitutional government is seen to fail, yeah. if the response to a duly constituted election is that half of the country or almost half of the country throws its toys out of the pram and walks out, then the light of freedom will dim around the world. But also a, a house divided against itself cannot stand. So, so if half the house goes, then there's the risk the whole house may collapse. So that's Lincoln. Lincoln made that speech, didn't he? I think in the Lincoln-Douglas debates that a house divided itself can't stand. That's right, isn't it, Adam? Yeah, but yeah. I mean, 1858, yeah. Why did, if, if the house so patently is divided... Why not just cut off the bit that's the problem, the rotten bit, as it were, and the rest of your house is going to be fine? I mean, that would be my argument. In some ways, if you're a northerner, you might well say, listen, we're a lot better off without those clowns. They're bad people. They've got slaves. You know, they're backward. Because that's what a lot of northerners thought about the South, right? They thought they were backward and kind of fly-bitten and and all this sort of stuff. Um, I mean, I would say it still is quite baffling that you're prepared to lose, you know, lose, what is it, more than 300,000 Northerners die Mm -hmm. in the Civil War to force these people to be back in their their country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And you've got, I mean, I agree. I think it is baffling. It's something I've really, I've been struggling with for 20 years. I mean, you you have American listeners. They can write in and tell you why us three Brits asking this question, what what we're missing and why it's all so ludicrous that we're even asking the question. But the answer must have something to do with the idea of the union. Yeah, it It must do. And what that promise of the revolution and and the declaration of independence represents. I mean, it's 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 kind of very on brand now to to sneer at the idea that there was a kind of moral imperative behind the union in the Civil War, that it's couched in overtly cynical terms. And yet I, I, I can't understand why they would have done it unless a certain sense of kind of an identification of their cause with what was best, not just for the North, but for the United States and for the whole of the world yes. was, it, was in exactly. play. No, I mean, it it's, com- it's... Yes, you've put that very well. That's exactly what they said repeatedly, and I think that's exactly what they thought. I mean, the flip side of that was the humiliation they said they felt, the, how diminished they, they felt on the, word, on the world stage as a result of secession that this was a necessary project in order this the fiery trial through which they now had to pass was 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 necessary in order to prove themselves as a as a as a real nation on the global stage adam we've been talking about it so far as though north and south are absolutely distinguishable or, that, or as though in effect they have become two separate countries but of course we call it the american civil war and that implies you know institutions and even families being divided and I suppose an obvious institution that does end up divided would be West Point, which is the great U.S. military academy, where large numbers of, of graduates and officers who uh, commanding heights of the U.S. Army have to decide which, which of the two sides they're going to go for. Um, and I suppose the emblematic figure who has to make his mind up is perhaps the most famous general of all, perhaps from Ulysses S. Grant, which is the the guy who ends up leading the Confederacy, Robert E. Lee. So what what's what's his background? How does he and how does he come to choose the Confederacy over the Union? Because he actually gets offered the leadership of the Union, doesn't he? He does because he's regarded as one of the most able officers in the United States Army uh, in 1860, 1861. Uh, he 
is a career army officer, but he's a Virginian. We, we mentioned him in the last episode. He was the guy who arrested John Brown when Brown launched his raid on Harper's Ferry in Virginia to trying to distribute the guns from that arsenal and, in, uh, and, and, and set off a slave insurrection. Um, so, you know, the story about Lee that has been told down the generations and that is much cherished by, you know, has been much cherished, still is by white Southerners, is that he was in an agony of indecision. You know, what should he do? You know, he's, he's after all, he's, he's an officer of the United States, so he's, he's sworn an oath to uphold the Constitution of the United States, but in his heart, he's a Virginian, and he's completely divided on what's he going to do. In the end, he can't bring himself to lead an army of invasion into his home state. That's the story that's that's told about Robert but, e. Lee. But. Well, I think that, <laughs> that is giving... I think what that undersells is the extent to which Lee, like other elite white uh, Virginians, was fundamentally committed to slavery, well, because uh, his wife owns large numbers of plantations, right? Yeah. And slaves. And yes, he's he's fully married into, he's part of a Virginia dynasty that has owned uh, slaves for uh, generations. He cannot, he temperamentally, culturally, intellectually, politically, he is, he loathes everything that this new insurgent radical Republican, as he would, as his people would probably call it like him, the black Republican party represents. He's just no way, no way that Robert E. Lee is ever going, was ever going to be comfortable leading the union army. Right. Because it's an important part of his brand that he's, so he gets compared to a, a perfect British gentleman by a you know, British observer during the war. He's a kind of silver fox. He's very stylish. Well, that's the Confederacy's cool. brand, though, Tom. I mean, yeah, that really is, is the Confederacy's brand. I mean, I read yeah, yeah. in my well, children's so, so, history book yes. that I read in the 1970s, that was the Confederacy's and so, brand. And that so that's what that... Could have Cavaliers. Yeah, and that hmm. is why Lee is the kind of... I mean, he's, the, in a sense, the Prince Rupert of, <laughs> of the Confederacy. He's, he's the dashing Cavalier. He's the, the emblem of it. But in essence, he is doing it because he wants to keep his children's inheritance safe. And that inheritance consists of plantations and of human property. Yeah. And, and the vision of America that he understands and that he understands he's inherited from uh, his uh, ancestors who fought in the revolution is one that fundamentally includes slavery. And as it were, what, you know, what, why shouldn't it? Because that's what the Republic has always done. And so he's standing against revolution, as he sees it. I mean, he could not conceive that a United States run by these new Republicans was going to be one that he would recognize. His world is about to end if the Republicans' yeah. vision for America dominates. And, and let's sort of pull back the, the camera back a bit. So by the summer of 1861, you have, I think, 11 states in the Confederate States of America. Um, they've got a population of 9 million people. Three and a half million of them or so are slaves. And they are against 22 states in the Union, so the Rump Union, if you like, our USA, I suppose you would call them, uh, with 22 million people, but massive advantages in mills, factories, railroads, and all those things. We know now, everybody know, listening to this knows that the Union wins. Just to go through those facts and figures, it makes it sound like, okay, it's just like playing out a board game. You know you've got all the cards. We've got two questions which go together well. One is, Grant Rogers, why did the Union Army lose so many battles at first? Uh, Spoiler alert, they do. Uh, and Will Randall, did the South stand a chance or was the North always going to win? So I think those, those questions kind of go together, really, because it's, it's the fact that the North doesn't 
um, win a kind of crushing victory initially that enable, allows the war to go on, but sets up the question of was the North always going to win? I think the North was always going to win if it could stay the course. If the war went on long enough for it to bring to bear its advantages in men and material and its diplomatic advantages and its territorial advantages and everything else, if the war went on long enough. But it might not have done. It might have ended earlier than that. So there are scenarios, I think, where you can, which you can, which we can talk about. We can imagine scenarios short of a, of the total military victory that the North, in the end, won. I mean, isn't that the only way they win, though, Adam? With the total military victory, because all the Confederacy has to do is just plod somehow plod along and keep going, and they'll eventually yeah. win, right? Because the North yeah, will settle, the, and then so the Confederate objectives are to persuade the north that this isn't a war that they can that they can win in that total way that this it isn't worth the enormous cost so in the and therefore because the united states is a democracy albeit only with you know with with men voting and essentially white men voting but it's it's subject to public opinion and so it follows then that logically confederate military strategy was focused on northern public opinion robert e lee got this you know, he knew that in the end, what he had to do was to persuade ordinary northern people that this wasn't a war that was worth fighting. Yeah. That's what the South had to do. What the North had to do, as you say, Dominic, is to completely destroy the South, which yeah. in the end uh, was was what they did. But it took them four years and it took them four years to marshal their superior resources. So by the very end of the war, by the final year of the war, the North was fighting a essentially a war of a, of attrition, in which it was pummeling the South day after day after day after day, often losing more men than the South in any in any given but they could um, afford to battle. But it could afford to do so. Yeah. Okay. So, Adam, one other way in which people say that the Confederacy, I mean, wouldn't have would have been able to hold out, perhaps, is if the European powers and perhaps particularly Britain had entered the war on its side. And yeah. So you, you mentioned about um, the Confederacy sending emissaries to, to Paris and to London. What would have happened if either the French or the British had come in on the Confederate side? And was there ever any prospect of that happening? Yeah, so this is this is kind of always the sort of deus ex machina for the South, right? This notion that there would be some foreign intervention. And after all, they, they knew how this would work because they could look back to the American War of Independence, right? So there was a war in which a bunch of sort of scrappy colonials with, with no proper army defeated the world's leading military superpower. I mean, what were the chances of that? Well, one of the ways in which they did it, of course, was with, the, with, with French military help. So they had a template there. Get the French involved again or get the Brits involved. And, and all of a sudden, you, you change the, the military balance. Um, and they had, you know, they had good reason for optimism. I mean, after all, if, and it's obviously a very big if, you take slavery out of the equation then what the Southerners were doing in 1861 was national self-determination. If you're a British liberal, you know, if, you, if, you're, if you're Gladstone or, or more to the point, if you're, the if Guardian. you're, if you're Richard <laughs> Cobden, yeah, you look at this and you're kind of, you know, your head explodes because national self-determination, obviously good. Like what's not to like about yeah. that? Um, the, the Southerners support free trade. They're anti-protectionist. That's obviously good. Um, 
But on the other hand, they're slaveholders. That's a bit of a problem. So what, you know, you, and, and so yeah. Brit- British liberals were in this genuine dilemma at the start of the war. But the fact that at the beginning of the war, Lincoln and the Union said, well, this is not a war to end slavery. This is just a war to keep the Union together, meant that there was space in British liberal radical circles to say, well, okay, if this really isn't a war to end slavery, then, and maybe as, you know, as Dominic was saying earlier, maybe actually slavery will come to an end earlier if it's kind of quarantined in this new Confederate. And then we can apply sanctions, we can use economic influence somehow or other, potentially we can blockade them, we can stop the imports of new slaves. Maybe slavery can end more quickly. Yeah, but also, uh, uh, Adam, isn't it the case that you could argue it's in Britain's strategic interest to break up the United States. I mean, there are all fear, there are fears all through the 19th century that there could be war between the United States and British North America, you know, what becomes Canada. So surely, I mean, isn't there an argument from kind of Palmerston and people like that? Mm. Listen, let's pile in, smash it all up. Great for us. We're even more top nation than we were already. The pesky colonials have been taught a lesson. And it's pretty much what the French are doing in Mexico, right? So we did, um, we did an episode on, uh, um, the extraordinary French adventure in Mexico, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and that basically is is an attempt to um, to, to to try and set up a, a French zone of influence while the Americans are distracted. Yeah, since the French are already militarily engaged in in North America in, with this bizarre intervention in in Mexico, um, Napoleon the Third is probably more likely to come in on in support of the Confederacy in the end than Britain. Everything you say is, is totally right, Dominic, about the kind of schadenfreude and the kind of um, gleeful enjoyment of the of the Americans going to war with one another um, in 1861. The, the, what are the countervailing factors that meant that in the end, I actually kind of, you know, to answer your question, was Britain ever likely to intervene on the part of the Confederacy? I think no is the answer. What were the countervailing factors? Well, one of them was um, the city of London and the massive amounts of investment that had been made in United States railroads and that all would have been put at jeopardy if Britain then had to go to war with the United States, which presumably would have been the inevitable consequence of intervention on, in support of the Confederacy. And the second one in the end was slavery. In the end, as it became clearer and clearer that Union victory in the war would deal likely an irreparable blow to slavery. It became harder and harder to imagine how a British government would do anything to actively support a pro-slavery republic. Yeah. And uh, that among the liberals, as you say, that, I mean, they can't do it really, can they, deep down? No. They can't pile in to support no. slaveholders. Because although as cynical and as ruthless as lots of liberal politicians are, they are as tom would say they are deeply christian and um, (laughs) well um i think we should take a break at this point uh when we come back i think we should look at the actual course of the war so we've we've kind of alluded to the fact that uh basically it's it's confederate successes all the way and effectively that establishes a stalemate i hope i've got that right tom am i not right in thinking for any listeners who attempted to to disappear you're also going to be talking about cricket possibly but i don't want to scare any remaining american listeners <laughs> <laughs> all right see you after the break this episode is brought to you by etsy looking to instantly upgrade your mother's day gift from typical to meaningful shop etsy now until may 12th get up to 30 percent off personalized jewelry style decor and so many other items mom will love and if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present use gift mode 
Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is History. We've been talking about the American Civil War. We've been talking about how it started, uh, why people chose sides, and why Britain did not get involved. Now, Adam, um, Tom and I were discussing this before we started recording, and the, the complexity – we are not military historians by any means – and the complexity of the sort of battle narrative, I think our puny minds – struggle to kind just of explode yeah to compute they, explode so so am i right in are we right in thinking that basically this it's a stalemate for the first 18 months or so in which the confederates probably win more battles than the than the union is that about right the only problem i have with the word stalemate is that implies there isn't any movement any territorial gains and 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 there is um so if you if you in the in the the western theater I mean, the union makes some significant gains i mean new orleans um, falls to well the Union Navy plays a key role there in the spring of 1862. 
um, much of the Mississippi Valley is under union control. So I think stalemate would be an exaggeration. But if you look at the Virginia theater, so the, the inevitably a lot of the battles were focused on this area between the two capitals, Richmond and Washington. And that, that was the place that it was easier for news reporters to get to. <laughs> that was where uh, Robert E. Lee was in, in by the um, spring of 62, was, was put in command of Confederate forces, the Army of Northern Virginia. So that was the kind of, that was the glamour end of the war. And certainly throughout uh, the spring and summer of 1862, it was the Confederates uh, in the driving seat all the way. So Lee is the kind of the, the poster boy, but the other poster boy for that is um, Stonewall Jackson. Tom, Tom mm. loves Stonewall Jackson, Adam. Well, I, mean, I didn't love. I, but Tom so has a very soft spot. Now I know I don't want to get you cancelled, Tom, because <laughs> having soft spots for Confederate generals is quite dodgy. But you, I know you have a tendresse well, for Stonewall Jackson. Well, well. So we, a question from Brad Smith: uh, How should history view figures like Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson? I, I we'll we'll come to that when you know when in due course. Mm. I think Stonewall Jackson is kind of an interesting figure, isn't he? Because he's. Um, the archetype of the kind of the Confederate general is, um, well, cavalier, long hair, uh, long hair, kind of dashing, all that kind of stuff. Stonewall Jackson is slightly made of sterner stuff. I mean, he is he is a more Cromwellian figure. He is, um, you know, he 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 teaches black children at Sunday school and all that kind of thing. Uh, and the fact that he he gets the nickname, doesn't he? Because um, in the very first battle at Bull Run. Um, there's the threat that the Confederate line will give way and he stands still and he's compared to a stone wall. Um, am I right in seeing him as, as a kind of distinctive, a, a distinctive figure or is he just part of this blur of kind of dashing morally dubious Confederate generals? There is something about Stonewall Jackson, isn't there? I mean, my mother-in-law like you is a big, is a big fan of Stonewall Jackson. I, I um, just to go on the record. I wouldn't describe myself as a big fan, <laughs> I just, but he does seem an intriguing figure. He is an intriguing figure. He sucks lemons, I believe, as yes. he goes into battle. There's been a lot of um, talk about that, hasn't there, about whether he ate lemons or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And peaches as well, I gather. Yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah, I, I've never quite thought about it as he, he complicates the the, the, the cavalier um, roundhead divide. But you're totally right, Tom, that he does, because he is. He is a, he's a kind of roundhead figure in a, in a, in a cavalier army. And maybe that's what makes him stand out among Confederate generals. I never quite thought about it like that before, but, but I think you're right. But Adam, is it? A, is it? I mean, so that the the stereotypical view, and actually, you get this right at the end of the war: the surrender at Appomattox Courthouse, Ulysses S. Grant, the Union commander, is all kind of muddy and sh- shabby figure, and Robert E. Lee is in his best uniform and a nice hat and all this sort of stuff. And that's the sort of, I mean, that's the the, the 1970s kind of children's book version of the war and the war and the version that i think a lot of americans in the 20th century grew mm. up with is that cavalier stuff I, I mean we can get in in a later episode i think to the lost cause of the confederacy is that all just nonsense i mean these are slave owners these are slave holders these are people uh, some of them professional military men i mean they're not just sort of simpering gone with the wind style fops with big hair are no. they no no, they're, they're, they're definitely not. Whether whether or not it all false depends on what you, you kind of want to do with this cavalier roundhead dichotomy. Because I think, you know, culturally, religiously, uh, temperamentally, there is, I think, some truth in the in the in the notion that this is, you know, this is a forlorn 
Um, this is a what what seems in retrospect to be a full forlorn effort by people who are um, defending a kind of older system of values uh, against a more modern army. So if that, you know if that's what you mean by the cavalier roundhead division, then I think there is some truth to it. But of course, you're right that yeah, these people are. I mean, the officer class in particular, anyway, in the Army of Northern Virginia are overwhelmingly slaveholders or the sons of slaveholders. But let's talk a bit about the experience of being a soldier in the American Civil War. So the standard thing that people say, Tom said it right at the beginning of the first episode in his his beautiful Karl Marx quotation (laughs) was about it as a sort of modern, it's the the first modern war. It's, It's a war full of novelty. But that makes it a horrible war, isn't it, as a soldier? I mean... Is it too fanciful to see it as a little bit, you know, there's a lot of, it's very first world war at times. There's an awful lot of mud. There is, you know, you're, you're being hit by shrapnel. Um, there's a lot of disease behind the lines. It's the conditions are, are horrible. What do the men themselves think of it? It becomes more and more like the first world war. So if you, if we were transported now to outside Petersburg and Virginia in August, 1864, we'd see entrenchments barbed wire, proto-machine guns. We'd see um, Union mining engineers tunnelling under Confederate lines in order to blow holes underneath, in order to try to engineer in advance, just like on the Western Front. Um, But... If, it's also Napoleonic, right, as well, though, because you've got right, exactly. cavalry, you've got and, Custer, you've got Jeb Stewart. And that's why it's a these... classic transition war. And so certainly yeah. through most of 1861, 62, 63, you wouldn't have seen much or any of that. You would have seen some entrenchments in some places, but you certainly would have seen uh, cavalry charges. And all through, and really right up until the end of the war, this continuing faith that, bayonet charges the kind of cult of the bayonet charge as the great glamorous decisive moment that's going to that's going well, to shift I, the I, war. Let, let's wait because we will talk about that in the context of gettysburg which perhaps we'll do in, in the next episode um we've talked about the experience of men in the war could we also talk about the experience of women so one of the things that makes to go back to my old friend stonewall jackson interesting is that his sister is a very very keen abolitionist and goes on the union side so that's kind of representative perhaps of of families divided is that common is there a kind of you know is that sense of a gender divide one that is is common or is that distinctive to jackson's family uh and more generally what is the role that women are playing because as i understand it it's it's unusually heightened relative to earlier wars the role that women play yes women are very involved in in both sides um in both sustaining the war effort and, in the end, in helping to undermine the war effort. So, um, so for example, by the summer of 1863, women on the home front in the South who are suffering severe shortages of bread and other basic foodstuffs, um, and in the context of massive Weimar Germany-style inflation, are out on the streets rioting uh, and encouraging desertion from the Confederate army in some places. Um, But at the same time, they're also the embodiment, women are projected as being the kind of embodiment of the patriotic cause on both sides. 
and so as in as in other modern wars both the the imagined reality of the role that women are playing but also the actual material reality as 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 nurses and as volunteers and as the people who are sustaining the war effort back home right so people are are running the farms and things yeah 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 it's 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 huge it's hugely important uh so the men are away from home um they're 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 riddled with disease they a lot of them presumably um i mean prostitution there must be camp followers with the with the with the two armies adam yeah yeah and general general hooker of course is supposedly the person who most encouraged or, or at least turned a blind eye to camp followers and uh um you know his name was attached to some of them the word hooker comes from general hooker well, I've learned something absolutely splendid. That is fascinating. <laughs> okay, that, so um, <laughs> when when uh, when people are not um, consorting with uh, ladies of the night, of course, what they should be doing is playing cricket. Mm. I mean, everyone knows that, uh, and cricket is very very popular in the United States uh, prior to the Civil War. Where does it all go wrong? Cricket is the forgotten casualty of the American Civil War, <laughs> and I'm and I'm glad that on this podcast we're going to restore it to its. It's central place. As you will know better than me, Tom, in, in 1859, there was an England tour of North America. I think they, they played three matches against uh, a United States 22. Uh, in, the Americans in had twice as many players. Yeah, they did. And I don't know. I mean, Tommy, presumably they didn't have 22 people actually on the field. They must no, have. They that, had 22 that, that people batting. That would but, be too but, bad even but only Americans. but only eleven but only eleven fielding. England won all three of those matches anyway. One in one in New Jersey across the across the river from New York. Uh, one in in Boston. One in Philadelphia. And they also played two matches against uh, Upper Canada, I think, on the same tour. And and cricket was indeed a, um, a, a very popular summer game. And that England tour really kind of uh, brought it into the public attention. And the new Illustrated Press was all over it. And uh, yeah, it was a big thing. And um, fast forward six years, the Amer- end of the American Civil War, and and cricket struggling, and 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 it's never never really recovered. I think there was another England cricket tour in eighteen sixty eight. That right? But it never it didn't have anything like the same impact as the eighteen fifty nine tour. And, and baseball has taken over, right? Baseball has taken over, and 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 you know one of the reasons for this is that um, baseball um, is a quicker game. Yeah. Also, because it doesn't Tom, require, it uh, doesn't. We can all agree it's basically a children's game, isn't it? I mean, it's a children's <laughs> game. Let's be let's be frank about it. Yeah. And it, it doesn't require because you don't have to, um, you don't have to, uh, you don't have to roll out a pitch because the ball doesn't bounce, does it? When you when you pitch in baseball, the ball doesn't actually pitch. Uh, so uh, therefore, um, baseball was easier to play in in army camps. Um, where um, where it might have been harder to play cricket, so I I, I do think this is th- there are if you search through the official records of the War of the Rebellion, um, looking for which is the huge com- compilation of all of the reports written by you know by by officers throughout the whole of the four years of the war, there are a few scattered references to cricket. Um, there were a few cricket games played between regiments. Um, especially in the early years of the war, but it but it becomes it's eclipsed by baseball. It's, as it's the a terrible game. thing. It, it's like the uh, the the the, uh, the cricket tour to uh, France that was projected in 1789. The great events of world history keep getting in the way. <laughs> so so sad, so sad. So let's get back to the great events. What happens over the course of 1862? So the very first episode we had Karl Marx looking at, you know, in in awe 
at the spectacle of these vast armies, kind of ignorant armies clashing by night. What is going on? What's, can, what, just give us a very quick kind of resume of, what, of the campaigning. So um, in the West, the Union Army is making advances down the Mississippi Valley, capturing New Orleans, which is really critically important. Because that in, cuts it in two, right? It doesn't. It's not fully cut in two until the summer of 1863 when Vicksburg falls. Yeah. But um, there's a lot. The Union is making territorial gains in Tennessee and in Arkansas and in Louisiana. Meanwhile, in the in the east, uh, in Virginia, uh, Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia is kind of running rings around uh, the Union Army. So, so the first, uh, or not the first, but the but the first Union uh, commander to make a serious effort to uh, try to win the war is General McClellan, who has this idea that he will kind of float the Union Army down to the uh, James River and advance on Richmond from the east um along the peninsula because he's got otherwise got this problem there are all these rivers that are running from you know running uh eastward cutting off a direct north south assault from washington to richmond so this is his clever idea um but he is defeated by general lee in what are known as the seven days battles uh in the summer of 1862 and lee then audaciously follows up on these important battles in which McClellan's army is pushed back to its original bridgehead uh, on the James River. and But instead of then just digging in and defending Richmond, as you might have expected him to do, what Lee then does is to send his troops into Maryland, a slave state, but one that has not seceded. It's basically been held within the Union kind of by force of arms. And uh, this is an incredibly... Um, audacious effort but it goes back to this core objective of the confederacy that we talked about earlier which is to persuade the north that this is not a war that in the end they can win because if they can win with this offensive campaign adam the war's been going on for more than a year lee presumably thinks if we can lay waste maryland you know smash the union armies the union just give up they'll realize they can't ever beat us yeah he kind of also hopes as well that that maryland being a slave state will kind of rise up in support of the confederacy augment his army and he can then move further from maryland into pennsylvania maybe even into new jersey who knows did, was, did, did he did he hope to capture washington itself he said yes i mean i mean that was within the that would have been the you know the outside the most ambitious objective or at least to encircle washington because washington is very vulnerable of course surrounded by slave states i mean it's a it's a, a federal district um which slavery um was legal on the eve of the war um it was it wasn't impossible to imagine that confederates could have encircled washington and that clearly would have been very very dangerous for the union and the and the bloodiest of all the battles is antietam is that right bloodiest single day yeah the battle of towton of the, the american american history <laughs> yes. as i like to think of it <laughs> yes yes uh and and that's a battle that i mean is essentially a, a a really bloody draw and so that's very first world war well, except it was a battle in a day. That isn't so first okay. world war, All is right. it? Okay. Um, okay. General Lee um, they had this incredible stroke of bad luck, which is that Confederate battle plans were were lost by a dispatch rider and picked up by a Union um, spy. And so, the, so General um, McClellan, the Union commander, actually knew exactly where uh, the Confederate army was 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 going to be. It gave them a huge advantage. Um, 
even so, it was it was less than a fully decisive Union victory, but it still stopped this kind of sense of kind of awe-inspiring inevitability of dramatic Southern victories because Antietam was definitely not that. Yeah. And as a result of it, uh, Lee's army retreated back into Virginia. But the other big result of it, I, I guess, is that... So we we talked about Abraham Lincoln a lot before, and he's we haven't talked about him so much in, in this episode but all this time, Lincoln has been chafing, hasn't he? Because he wanted McClellan, his commander, to wage a much more sort of total war. McClellan was sort of wittering about fighting a war on Christian principles and being kind to people and stuff and not attacking. Hearts and mind strategy. Yeah, which obviously Lincoln thought was a complete dead loss, didn't he? Because Lincoln yeah. is much more clear-sighted. But Lincoln, you mentioned before, Lincoln had said at the beginning, it's not a war to end slavery. I mean, an extraordinary thing to say in when we look back at it now, when we think of the war as a war to end slavery. Um, so has Lincoln been itching for an opportunity for one victory so that he can change the terms of the war? Or do you think, Adam? Or does he issue, because he comes to issue the Emancipation Proclamation, freeing slaves, does he do that in desperation? Or does he do that because he's always wanted to do it? He has always wanted slavery to end, but it's not that he had a clear plan in his mind from the outset of hostilities. If, let's just imagine, McClellan had been a better general or General Lee had been a worse general and the Peninsula campaign in the spring of 1862 had been successful and Richmond had fallen in May or June or July of 1862. And let's just imagine that if that happened, that was such a morale blow to the South that several southern states said, okay, the game's up, let's rejoin the Union. If that had happened and somehow the war had come to an end then, slavery still would have existed and Lincoln would have had to put up with that. More than put up with that, Lincoln would have regarded that as a great political victory. His struggle against slavery no doubt would have continued. Yeah. He wouldn't have changed his mind about slavery. But the, 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 the war could easily have come to an end if it, had, if it had saved the Union or could have come to an end if there'd been a way of saving it while, still, while slavery remained intact. Lincoln said as much in terms in a letter he wrote to a northern newspaper editor, Horace Greeley, in which he said, if I could save the Union by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. If I could save the Union by freeing some of them and leaving others alone, I would do that. If I could save the Union by without freeing any slaves, I would do that too. I'm so the union ma genuinely matters more to him. What he is doing is saving the union. Now, the thing is, when he wrote that letter, though, he had already written and signed a draft of the preliminary emancipation proclamation, but he'd locked it in his desk drawer. He hadn't made it public. So even while he's saying, everything I do, I do to save the union, he knows the way this is going. And the reason why he hadn't this is in the in, in, in the summer of uh, in, in July, August 1862. And the reason why he hadn't made the preliminary emancipation proclamation public at that point was precisely because, as you just said, Dominic, it might be perceived as desperation. Right. And then maybe it would be counterproductive. Maybe then it would actually convince European powers that, oh, my God, if they're needing to do this, then the Union is really on the back foot. And so perhaps actually the Confederacy is in an even stronger military position than we'd thought. So his Secretary of State, William Seward, basically advises Lincoln to hold off on making the proclamation public until the Union wins a victory. And they kind of win a victory in September at Antietam in Maryland, which you've just been talking about. 
And so it's on the back of that, the link and issues, this preliminary emancipation proclamation. And we were saying before that lots of people were abolitionists and yet were very racist. And of course, there are lots of people in the North who probably aren't abolitionists or the, I mean, as, as so often in history, there are probably lots of people who couldn't care less about slavery one way or the other. Are they alarmed by such a revolutionary? I mean, given everything we talked about in the first episode, this torturous, grueling argument about the future of slavery, and suddenly Lincoln is like, bang, right, that's it. Through executive action, I am emancipating all the slaves. Um, Getting abolitionism done. Yeah, let's get abolitionism done. He's on his bloody Boris thing, smashing through the polystyrene blocks. Uh, aren't, are there not people who say, oh, my God, what a usurpation of executive power, How he shouldn't have done this? Or, or have they all become so radicalised by the war that they don't care anymore? No, there are loads of people saying exactly that, in exactly, in exactly that language. He's politically very, very divisive. And, of course, he does it just before the midterm elections, in which the Republicans then lose a bunch of seats to the Democrats in the North and lose some key, the, the New York governorship, for example, goes is won by a Democrat who's opposed to the emancipation policy. Um, he's not really getting emancipation done, though, anyway. What he's actually saying in the September um, preliminary emancipation proclamation is if this war is still going on on the 1st of January 1863 in three months' time, if the southern states are still pretending that they're outside of the Union, then at that point I will regard enslaved people in those areas still in rebellion as free. That's what he's actually. So what he's not doing is to free. I mean, there are, in fact, as it, when it comes to it, some tens of thousands of enslaved people who are directly freed by the Emancipation Proclamation. But in fact, what he's doing is declaring free those slaves who are not in union control and not freeing those slaves who are uh, in union control. And there are still, after all, four at this point, four states where slavery is legal that are still in the union for border slave states. So Jefferson Davis, who is the president of the Confederacy and, and his pals, how do they react to this? I imagine with ex, with ecstatic joy. <laughs> they regard it as the most dastardly thing ever done uh, in the in the long annals of human warfare, that the levels of, of, of despicable desperation um, on display by this emancipation policy appalls them. It is everything. It is their ultimate nightmare. It's everything they've always feared about this this Jacobinical Black Republican Party. And so, presumably, that makes their determination to fight on even more resolute. Yeah, because there can be no but settlement. Likewise, now, right? it 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 gives to the Union to those fighting from conviction for the Union a sense that they are engaged in what we might call a crusade. Yes. And so therefore, it, it sets, up, sets us up for 1863, which in many ways is the kind of the, the fulcrum of the, the entire war, which I think we should look at in our next episode. Tom, I thought you can ask another question, but actually that was a beautiful segue into the end of the episode. It's very nice. Uh, shall I carry on? This is for broadcast. I'm complimenting you. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, well, that's very kind. <laughs> okay. Well, on that, as Dominic described it, beautiful ending, uh, we will end. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.